Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Julio Darcy. He's an assistant professor of chemistry at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, he's working on an energy storing ability using bricks, uh, which I'll let him describe further. But Julio, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my work. Like you said, we were able to store energy in bricks. These are the same bricks that you buy for building a house. And we, as a matter of fact, we bought our bricks at Home Depot. And we were able to transform oh. the red color in them, which is hematite, into a useful right. material that can actually store energy. So, well, how did this idea come to you? you know, how did you end up at Home Depot with bricks? And you know, what's, what's been your research that uh, put you into this train of thought? Yeah, uh, we were we were really interested when we when I started the lab at uh, Washington University, I was really interested in trying to use materials that were abundant, uh, maybe waste materials that are had no use. And uh, I started looking at different materials, and one of them was iron corrosion, rust. And I discovered that rust is a fascinating material, and you find it in a lot of uh, places in nature and also in a lot of places that are you know synthetic places that humans have built. So for example, in construction, you encounter a lot of rust. We use it for the colors. And so we had my laboratory and my students and myself, we were working with rust. And we had a couple of publications where we demonstrated that you can you can actually change the, the, the properties of rust at the chemical level. And if you're able to do that, then rust can actually do other things besides give you pretty colors. It can also serve as a chemical agent that can actually oxidize things. And what we do in my laboratory is that we make materials that can store energy. We make organic semiconductors. But in order to make them, I need to be able to oxidize uh, the reactants. And if I can oxidize the reactants, then I can produce these materials that can store energy. So bricks are really interesting because they have rust. As a matter of fact, that red color in bricks, it comes from rust. It's a very, it comes from a type of rust known as a hematite. Um, and hematite is a very abundant material, it's very inexpensive, and uh, bricks contain about 6% of hematite. Well, that depends really on the bricks, but the ones that we bought had about 6% of hematite. And we had developed all these strategies before on how to convert rust into a useful material, and now we were able to do that in brick, and the outcome was that our bricks, after we did our chemical synthesis on these bricks, um, they were no longer red, they were blue. Uh, they had a very uh, dark blue color to them. Um, and also, if you looked in the microscope, the structure of the brick had changed. It was no longer an inorganic um, lattice made of glass. It was now coated by all these nanofibers because what we did is that we put a coating of nanofibers outside on inside the bricks, we were, we were able to make nanofibers grow from the inside of the brick and come out to the surface. So if our bricks get chipped, if you chip a little piece of our, of our bricks, 
what you discover is that there's still nanofibers inside, which means that we're not really painting bricks with, with any type of coating. We're actually changing the chemical composition. And these little nanofibers are a type of semiconductor known as P-dot. And we grow these nanofibular P-dot coatings throughout the microstructure of the bricks. And so the what, what does P-dot stand for? Uh, P-dot is a conducting polymer. It's a plastic that conducts electricity. And it's a sulfur-based polymer. And it stands for poly-3,4-ethylene-deoxythiophene, which basically means a conjugated chain of carbon and, um, and hydrogens um, that have oxygen and sulfur. And this particular type of polymer is really interesting. P-dot is a plastic that can actually conduct electricity. It can store energy and it can grow from the hematite inside the bricks. And uh, my laboratory has been developing different techniques for making P-dot. In this particular case, it worked really well. And the outcome were these bricks that can actually store energy. We knew that our job was done when the brick, cha when the brick changed color. And then when we applied a potential to it, it behaves just like a battery. There's no difference. So what, what is the capacitance between the fibers? When does the capacitance occur? Yeah, the, that's really, really good question because... Um, we are really interested in, uh, in answering that. We know that the fibers contribute a lot of uh, advantages to a battery or a supercapacitor, which is what we've sent, which is what we made. Nanofibers increase the surface area and they, and they should increase the capacitance as well because they increase the surface area. The trick is making nanofibers that don't lose electrical conductivity over time or making nanofibers that don't change chemical structure over time. If you're able to, I don't know if, you know, if, if you have, if there's any magnetism going on, but I would guess you get very different properties. Like there's probably a seesaw between capacitance and conductance if the nanofibers are aligned versus just like scrambled all over the place. Oh yeah, no, that's a beautiful point because the moment that you can align things, you can, you can really study the things that you've, you've indicated. What is the effect on magnetism um, when you align fibers uh, that maybe have some type of, uh, uh, you know, our nanofibers conduct electricity, but funny enough that you should bring that up because we can also convert our nanofibers into materials that can actually be magnetic as well. Because if you think about it, we actually start our synthesis from hematite. There's iron in hematite. It's a form of rust. So in our polymer, once we polymerize it, that iron has to go somewhere. And what we've discovered is that we can actually incorporate it inside our polymer. And sometimes, you know, if we want, we can actually form a type of iron that's magnetic. And so the idea of making magnetic nanofibers is something that we're actually, we've, we've been looking at for many years. And we are definitely going to publish on that because it's a really fascinating to topic. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of uh, alignment on the nanofibers or, or them not being aligned also has a huge effect on electrical conductivity and on the capacitance. Because uh, if you think about this, your car battery has an anode and a cathode, which means that the, the electrolyte, the ions in the electrolyte, they have to travel in that linear direction from the anode to the cathode. And if you do not have any, any barriers for the ions to travel between anode and cathode, you get more power out, uh, out of your batteries. Now, if you have nanofibers that are kind of like scrambled everywhere, they can make like a barrier for ions to go in and out. And that can slow the amount of uh, charge or the dissipation or the, the amount of energy that you get out of a, a battery, battery. But if your nanofibers are aligned, that's really 
elegant chemistry because now the ions can actually infiltrate these nanofibers that are aligned serving as like tunnels that direct ions to travel back and forth between the anode and the cathode. So the idea of controlling the morphology is really key for developing, um, for taking advantage of nanoscience and enhancing the properties of batteries. You know, we go nano because if you control nano, you can enhance the amount of capacitance and the amount of energy density that you can get out of these batteries. And so that's actually one of the things that we need to do because our bricks they have limitations and the limitations are that they have a low energy density. And so and there are many ways in which we can try to fix that. Uh, and one of those ways is through nanoscience. So bricks have a microstructure, which is really interesting for ions to go in and out. But what about other types of bricks? You know, like what if we made our own bricks? What if, you know, what if- Well, we before we move on, yeah. When, when you're forming these fibers, I imagined, I don't know if that's right, that some of the iron gets excluded and now you have like a interstitial space that is maybe more iron rich, maybe that runs along the fibers, I don't know. So like you could possibly align the interstitial domains, you know, using magnetism, not the fibers themselves, and that may change how the fibers act or the capacitance, and then you can, you know, change the properties of the fibers as well, and that would change it too. That, that is a really interesting idea. Um, there are groups that explore the idea of magnetism for increasing the amount of energy that you can store, probably capacitance. And so your idea is probably right on. This is something that is doable. The amount of control that you need to have is very, you know, it has to be, you need to have a high amount of control, a large amount of control to do that. But if you're able to do that, uh, I can see many things. I can see one. Once you make the nanofibers, you can maybe increase the capacitance. And two, if you apply this uh, a magnetic field and you are able to control the orientation of grains of metals inside these nanofibers, because you're right, there's iron inside the fibers and there's some crystallites of iron inside those fibers. And some of them are going to have magnetic properties and some of them are not. And that's actually easy to control. All we have to do is just raise the temperature of the syntheses and you produce different phases of iron that are more magnetic. And if you're able to do that, if you're able to apply a magnetic field after you synthesize, you can increase the capacitance. But if you're able to apply a magnetic field while the nanofiber, while the nanofibers are being synthesized, that's actually a really interesting uh, approach, I think, uh, for making nanofibers. You know, what is the effect of the magnetic field as you start forming the nanofibers? And, you know, this is what we call in situ synthesis. Like, you know, you read about uh, syntheses where people say, you know, in situ growth, in situ mechanisms. All that means is that inside the pot where everything is being synthesized, as it's being synthesized, you have some kind of like synergistic mechanism that's occurring. And so in this idea that you're proposing, which is a great idea, is that you apply a magnetic field as you synthesize the nanofibers because they have iron in them. And so you can do that. So what is the effect on the outcome of the nanofibrillar synthesis? And this is something that we have studied. We have not done it through magnetism. We have uh, specifically tried to avoid this idea because it's a saturated field at some level. And physicists are really, you know, investigating this area a lot. Maybe not, not specifically in our system, right? And so I feel like um, sometimes magnetism is very complex <laughs> and difficult for me to understand. And so as a chemist, sometimes I stay more on the side of synthesis and I try to control the orientation of those iron grains that you're referring to through chemical synthesis in the fume hood. And you know what? It works. It works. You can do it both yeah, ways. I, I figured if you um, 
if you pulse, you know, when you're, I don't know if this is a baking process or how you do this, but, you know, if you pulse temperature, if you pulse um, pressure, if you pulse magnetic field, you know, I wonder if you'll get like, if you'll discover an ideal length of the fibers and ideal orientation, if you can create, again, domains that are highly aligned and ones that are not, uh, yeah. I guess there's a ton of work to do. Sounds good. Yeah, a ton of work to do, but man, you're just you're just full of really awesome ideas, and this is this is where where I see my lab going. It's uh, we we see these ideas in 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 bricks. You know, we're storing energy in bricks. But what if the nanofibers were longer? And we know that's going to have an effect on the amount of energy that you store. What if the nanofibers had iron domains that, let's say, are not just magnetic, but you will discover that some of these iron domains that you find are also pseudocapacitive. They can store energy, not like the polymer that we make, but by a different mechanism. Oh, well, it's actually a very similar mechanism. But the difference is that when you store energy in a metal, you tend to get more energy density out of it. And so this is a very attractive idea of combining uh, organic semiconducting polymers that store energy, like the ones that we published, with iron domains that could be inside the brick, that could be magnetic, but some iron domains are pseudocapacitive. And so, and funny enough that some of these that are magnetic are also pseudocapacitive. So Fe304 magnetite is one of the most popular uh, iron oxides for its magnetic properties, but it's also very useful for making batteries based on iron that can store energy. So the idea of trying to incorporate iron from the brick that can store energy, plus the polymer that we add that stores energy, is like a double whammy, right? You're gonna get the best out of the elemental composition in the brick that can be pseudocapacitive, and you're gonna get the best out of our deposition that's also pseudocapacitive, and you can increase the energy density. And this is something that we are very much doing in the lab right now. We're trying to make our own bricks because this idea is going to work. This is this is not something we've invented, but the idea of using metal oxides for increasing energy density is one of the most popular and attractive um, strategies for increasing, you know, the for advancing batteries and supercapacitors, which is what we've made. Our bricks are supercapacitors. They're similar to batteries, but they don't have the energy density of batteries. They have a much lower energy density. And that's the limitation. That's why there's a lot of work to be done ahead for us. Is there any point in, you know, after you make these special bricks, pulverizing them and harvesting just the, the PEMDOT or harvesting the, you know, the interstitial domains to see if they're changed in a, in a useful way? Yeah, actually, people are interested in that idea um, for um, well, the questions that I've, that I've received about that are, are, have to do with recycling. You know, people are concerned about we put a plastic on the surface of a brick. What happens once you when, once what happens when you remove the brick from, from the house? Can you pulverize it and separate the polymer from the brick? And and the idea is that yeah, you can. You can. Your idea is actually very interesting because you're saying can you do chemical synthesis? You know, by having the bricks being you know serving as supercapacitors. And I'll tell you this: when we published our work, we cycled that battery our supercapacitor 10,000 times. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And it takes us about 13 minutes to recharge a wall of 50 bricks. That's what we calculated. So if you only have to recharge it once per, per you know, every day, based on, our, on the number of cycles that we've done, it would take you 30 years before that wall, you would have to change, in theory, the polymer. So after 30 wow. years of cycling it on and off, Maybe there's actually some change in the in the inorganic uh, orientation of any grain boundaries inside the bricks. I don't know, but the reviewers for our publication were very much concerned about that idea. 
of uh, Wade, hey, you're cycling back and forth a brick. Are you changing anything about the brick? And we tried it and we discovered that we're not, at least based on this uh, 10,000 cycles that we, that we carried out. A brick is basically 80% glass. It's just glass, which is very insulating. So when we're applying all these electrical potentials, the brick is really not experiencing any electrical potential changes. The electrolyte, on the other hand, is a little acidic, but glass is very stable under acidic conditions. And so we found that the brick is actually very a very good uh, matrix for our, for our devices, very robust, mechanically robust. And that made our devices electrochemically robust. So um, with the current energy density level, I know you want to improve it. What could be a commercial application right now? Is it is it store enough energy or conduct enough to do anything useful? Let's say if a building was composed of it. You know what? I, that's a really good question. So in theory, yeah, but you, you're going to pay a higher price than than with other technologies. Uh, but there are some advantages. Our technology is based on water. Our electrolyte uses water. It's not like a lithium-ion battery. Our technology is also incorporated in the load-bearing materials of the house, of the structure of the house, which means that installation costs are lower than when you have to install something extrinsically, an add-on to the house. But yeah, unfortunately, the energy density thing um, makes this not a commercial, not, not something ready for, uh, for, for a commercial application at this moment. We need to increase the energy density by an order of magnitude. And we might be five years away from that. Yeah, I just wonder, um, maybe it's like a very particular application, but you know, older buildings that are brick that you want to retrofit, let's say with solar, maybe at very least during times when the solar is not working, you know, from the sun soaking a building, there'll be enough energy stored up, you know, capacitance wise that would extend the life of the solar on those buildings just came into my mind. Yeah, no, I look, the, the, idea, the idea of incorporating our bricks with solar energy is ideal. Um, this is exactly the way that we see it working. Um, you know, the house is built out of bricks and the solar cells go on, you know, on the house. So integrating solar cells with our bricks is the way to go. You're going to have short, shorter pathways for electricity to be carried from one place to another in the house. You can set up the bricks next to the load that's actually going to utilize the energy. So, you you know, you would design the house in a different way. You wouldn't have these cables uh, everywhere, I guess. You would be more selective as to where the cables go, I guess, in a house. So uh, I, do, I do think that, going, that getting to a commercial point is where we want to go. Uh, at this moment, the way that we can do that is by creating composites. And by creating composites with metal oxides, like I indicated before, we are going to be able to increase our energy density. However, we're not going to reach the energy density of a lithium-ion battery. Because in order for you to reach high uh, energy densities, you need a different material. Our conducting polymers can provide you with some of the energy that you need, but not all of the energy. So it's like having a smaller gas tank in the car. Um, so what are they good for? At this moment, if you want to power emergency lighting in the house, they're good for that. If you want to power small microelectronics that are embedded in the house, they're good for that. So we see an application at this moment for our uh, bricks that don't consume a lot of energy. But of course, we want to increase that. We want to increase that energy density. Our polymers have other advantages too, and we're exploring that as well. So our paper our fo uh, has been fo is focused on energy storage, but these polymers have other advantages too. So we're exploring other applications for the polymers. You know, these are materials that are semiconducting, 
And semiconductors uh, interact with the environment in a very funny way. They can actually sense a change in pH. They can sense a change in humidity and they can sense a change in temperature. So the idea is if you have these conducting polymer coatings throughout the house, right? And now you're sensing humidity changes in your house, in the bricks, would that be useful? And we, and we believe it would be. We know that we can pattern bricks with our technology because we're exploring that and we have publications that show that we can do that. So now we're starting to develop sensors on bricks that can sense temperature, humidity, and pH changes. Yeah, you can identify hot spots, leaks, all kinds of stuff. Yeah? Right, that's right, that's the idea. That's the idea. I would love to solve a problem. And I know that in a house, what you said are problems and they can lead to corrosion. They can, they can lead to, you know, your, your house becoming less energy efficient because you have a leak. Um, and so what if the sensors were integrated in the bricks? You know, they're not coming out of the house. Their sensors are not going to, they're not going to uh, peel off um, because our publication would demonstrate is that we can actually convert the, the red stuff in the bricks, which means the sensors would be made out of the hematite in the bricks. They would be integrated into the bricks they're not going to come off. And so that's the idea. That's the advantage of our technology. So maybe we're not going to replace lithium-ion batteries right now, but it is the beginning of a new way to think about architecture as well, I think. Um, architects, you know, they, they, this is a new Lego piece that they have that they didn't have before for building houses. Yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I can see them, you know, thinking about uh, energy efficiency in a different way, you know, how many bricks do you need per, you know, in a, in a room? How much energy do you, do you need to store in a room? Uh, where do you need to detect the leaks? Are they in the basement? Um, where do you need to detect pH change? You know, all these chemicals that we use for cleaning the bathroom that are highly um, toxic, right? You want to maybe just know if maybe the pH in the atmosphere in the bathroom is too, is too crazy when you're cleaning the bathroom and you shouldn't go in the bathroom. Um, and this happens. Um, the chemicals that we use, you have to be very cautious about how you use them so they don't, you know, so you don't hurt yourself when you're cleaning the bathroom. Uh, the same thing with food. They have a pH. The same thing with uh, when you cook. Uh, there's a pH by the kitchen. So we're thinking, how can our bricks provide functionalities that are semiconducting functionalities, that are electronic functionalities, that are going to enhance load-bearing materials? And the reason why I'm so excited about this, okay, is because we basically live in caves. You know, we think of cave people living in caves, but that's what we do as well, right? We live in these energy efficient buildings that are, are, are made out of minerals. They're made out of cement. They're made out of rocks. They're made out of bricks. They're made out of clay. They're made out of all these mineral ores that were taken out of the ground and they were processed. They're made out of glass, but it's just a cave. And so the idea is how do you add a functionality to, to a rock? that is not a load bearing functionality. And that's where we show up. That's where our technology shows up. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if we can go backwards and talk about rust. Um, yeah. It sounds like you've studied it a lot. Why would it be used in bricks, by the way? What, is, what does it do for the brick? In the brick? Well, uh, that's a really good question. So I know that uh, the color of the brick is very important and to companies. We've been talking to companies over the summer and the red color is very important and people love that red color. And so I know from a, from a perspective of colors, rust provides the colors. So maybe that's what makes the product appealing for people to buy. The brick is 80% uh, glass and then is about 10% uh, or something like that of alumina. And then about 
4% of titania, 5% titania, and 5% hematite. So for the fusion for this brick to actually be mechanically uh, strong, um, I'm not sure if the hematite is, is necessary, um, but you can, because you can also have bricks that don't have any hematite. So you find- Yeah, what are, what are their uh, structural capabilities if they have none, or their high hematite bricks, and what are they like? You know, they- are they used in different situations? Yes, you know, I, I they would be used in different situations, and and I and I would not know where they would be used. But I know that there are bricks that don't have hematite, and there are bricks that have up to six uh, percent hematite. And and uh, I know the porosity of the bricks differs. And so one of the things when you buy bricks that they have different porosities, and so you probably could consider the porosity for water absor- absorption. So if probably I'm guessing. If you don't want water to infiltrate a brick, you probably use a brick that's less porous. Um, <laughs> and so in my mind, I am not a civil engineer. <laughs> I would assume that would go in the basement <laughs> where there's less, uh, you know, where you're more concerned about humidity. But, you know, but these things get more expensive. The, the bricks that are, bricks have different um, values. So I, I don't know how much these things cost. The bricks that we're working with are the cheapest bricks that you can buy. Our bricks, uh, all the experiments that we did, we did them with type one, type two, type three bricks, which are about 65 cents per brick. But, you know, there are other bricks. And I have, my students are from, I have students from China and and they've been showing me bricks that are uh, white, don't have any hematite. And there are bricks that are are made by Mitsubishi that are 100% hematite. uh, and you can just pack them, uh, compress them, and fuse them at high temperatures uh, because hematite is so abundant and so inexpensive. People are trying to do different things when it comes to bricks. You have bricks that are green in color because hematite can have different colors. It's not just, uh, I'm sorry, uh, rust can have different colors, not just red. So you could have other bricks, other types of bricks that are not just hematite based, but other rust faces that have other rust faces and different colors. Um, uh, and tiles as well, the red and tiles come from this hematite. So so hematite is just something you find in clays and we love our clays, you know, for construction. We use them for tiles. We use them for uh, tiles in the bathroom, for tiles on the floor. We use them for, you know, our potteries, for our pots, and we use them for our bricks. So, you know, rust is everywhere. Yeah, in, just, in construction. Is, I know you're busy. My instinct is telling me, though, that you should hang out with some brick experts and ask them something. I think I bet you something's going to jump out at you that'll get you to this, uh, higher energy density a lot faster if you understand bricks themselves and all the different contexts in which they're used and then you know hematite and rust i just that's just my feeling is that uh, there's something special about you know these two things that'll really help you yeah i i I agree with you i i i I think that brick experts they bring uh, knowledge on the mineral contents and these are geologists, you know, people that work for brick companies are geologists that specialize in understanding all the minerals that go into, into, you know, that you can find in bricks. And there are thousands of types of bricks and they have all different types of uh, geological compositions with different elements. And we have been working with um, mainly iron oxides, but there are other oxides that you find in bricks that, that could be very useful to us. Um, that store energy as well. So yeah, you're actually right again. <laughs> this is very cool. Uh, you have a lot of really good ideas. Um, this is exactly what we need to do. And as a matter of fact, when we talk to uh, brick companies, uh, because we've been talking to brick companies to try to license this thing, um, we talk to geologists. They have geologists that want to understand what elemental composition is it that we're after. And and yeah, I have been discovering 
there are just thousands of different types of bricks that each company can have. You know, these are conglomerates that you find in the U.S. that sell thousands of different types of bricks. The bricks that I use came from Missouri. Uh, you know, they came from clays here that you find in Missouri, and they were uh, they were uh, annealed here in Missouri, and they were sold here in Missouri. Yeah, I mean, also to the mortar in between the bricks. I'm sure different bricks require different types of mortar, and then. You know, what does your energy system look like if you have discrete, you know, bricks that really aren't connected in any way? And what if there was a mortar that could act as a better insulator between the bricks, as a worse one that allows, you know, buildup of capacitance and then conductance through the mortar to other bricks that would also modulate, you know, how it works and how closely packed they are, et cetera. Yeah, no, no, that's a cool idea. So that, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of like the holy grail, right? Is that you build the house. And as you build a house, you're also, you're also putting together your energy storage without, you know, without any cables, without any training whatsoever, right? You're just laying bricks with mortar. And while you do that, you're also putting together the energy storage device that's going to give you energy. That's just a crazy concept, but why not, right? That's absolutely where we should go. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally dig that. And, and and there are challenges associated with it, but I love the vision. And that's exactly where we would love to go. Um, and, and I'll just, yes. And, the, and, and, but, you know, there are challenges associated with it. We have thought about these challenges, about some of them, and we have come up with some solutions for some of these challenges, but we haven't solved it yet. But I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, you always have to kind of like take a peek and look at see if you know something is failing one of your electronic devices. You want to go and take a peek and see what is going on, right? So how do you do that with a house, right? And so, and so one of the ideas is that we published a, the paper that we're talking about shows you how you take an anode and a cathode and you stack them together, right? And then that allows you to store energy. But you don't have to do it that way. You can put the anode and the cathode on the same face of the brick. And now instead of having this face-to-face -face geometry for your battery now you have this kind of like flat 2d geometry for your battery and it works and it works the same it's actually better so this idea of using like electrodes that are just on one side of the brick and you put both anode and cathode on the same face of the brick they're just separated requires that you pattern a brick so you just need a little uh, higher level of uh, sophistication when it comes to patterning and you're able to put the anode and the cathode on one side of the brick which means that when you build a device that stores energy you can tuck it away somewhere in your house and if you need to go take a look at the device now you can go to the back of the wall you know maybe peel off a paint or or peel off a picture or I don't know how you would do it or maybe it can be a, a hollow wall but you can actually now go look on the back of the wall and look at your device and you do not have to remove any bricks. You do not need to unstack any bricks because we can engineer the device that way. Uh, the, the mortar is the more, the mortar is a really, really awesome topic because yeah, that's exactly what you want to do. Um, man, it's just like putting that electrical potential through the mortar, using the mortar as a dielectric to try to increase the amount of, pol of polarization that you have between the anode and the cathode to try to increase the capacitance. It's a really cool idea. Uh, you can think of dielectric capacitors and you can think of the dielectric potential of the, or dielectric constant of that mortar working in that, in that fashion. What are the challenges? Well, the mortar has a high pH very high pH and that pH is tricky to work with. And so one of the things that you can do is you can put the mortar, but don't put the, the device that stores energy close to the mortar so you can protect it from the pH. 
The second thing is you can also encapsulate devices and protect them from the mortar. So we demonstrate in our paper that if you take a brick and you convert it into an energy storage a storing brick, you can actually coat it in five-minute epoxy that you also buy at Home Depot. And then you can then, <laughs> then you can just dunk this battery supercapacitor in a bucket of water and it continues to store energy. So just a five-minute epoxy coating protects the the polymer from water. It'll do the same thing for mortar, we believe. So you can protect the device with epoxy and keep the mortar separated. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, (laughs) With with rust, you mentioned way in the beginning that rust, I mean, even though it's oxidized uh, iron and other oxides, it still can oxidize other materials. How, How can it do that if it's already been oxidized? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the the hematite that I am referring to cannot do that unless you treat it chemically and you dissolve dissolve it chemically. So when rust is um, hematite, let's talk about hematite. The rust in the brick is hematite. That's the most stable form of rust. And you can grab a brick with your hands and it will not oxidize your fingers. You know, a brick is very stable, you know, uh, is inert, chemically inert. But if you add a little bit of acid to a brick, you will start to dissolve a little bit of that rust. And the moment that you dissolve rust, it goes into solution, but it is no longer an inorganic solid state lattice. It is now an ion. You've actually separated the iron centers from the oxygen atoms that were present in the inorganic lattice. And now they're floating in solution like ions. Iron, the ions of iron can be very reactive. And one of those ions uh, is an oxidizing agent. And, uh, and that's what we do. So what we do is that we actually treat the rust chemically. We create this intermediate that's highly reactive. And now we can use that intermediate for making, making our polymer. And the way that we do it is very simple. We take a brick, we put it in the oven, and we expose it to a little bit of vapors of acid. Okay, so we start dissolving a few layers of rust, but we allow the vapors of acid to infiltrate all of the pores of the brick. We raise the temperature a little bit to about 160 degrees centigrade, and then we start introducing gases. And the gas that we introduce is a gas of a monomer. So this is an organic molecule, and the vapors of the organic molecule go inside the brick upon contact with any oxidizing agent, which will be the entire brick at this point, this organic monomer starts to polymerize. And now the entire brick, including all the pores throughout the brick, start becoming uh, our P-dot polymer, this sulfur-based conducting polymer. And, And that's how we do it. We take advantage of the fact that we can dissolve rust, create an oxidizing agent, we use gases because that's the magic. That's the magic of my lab. <laughs> we, we like to use gases for doing syntheses. So we're able to use gases that infiltrate the, the porous structure of, of the brick. Once we make nanofibers of the polymer, our nanofibers are, they have a very high surface area. They're like a, very, a nano sponge. And uh, these sponges are soft because it's a soft plastic. And this plastic is now trapped inside the inorganic brick. And brick is a hard material. You know, you, you can touch a brick and you know it's hard. It's glass, alumina, and titania. It's a hard material. But all these soft plastics, uh, all these soft nanofibers that we synthesize are now trapped inside and they cannot come out. So we have kind of like a very interesting, like a sponge of nanofibers, soft nanofibers throughout all the uh, structure of the brick, throughout all the pores. And what's good about all of this uh, is that 
our polymers allowed the diffusion of gases and they allowed the diffusion of ions in, in solution. So we, can, so we don't plug the pores. The pores are not blocked. Our polymers are there and they do add resistance to, to the ionic conductivity, but they don't block completely the ions. So ions can go in through the, 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 the pores of the brick and they can interact with all the nanofibers of our polymers that can then store energy. But if you, um, I was thinking a funny example is like reverse chocolate chip ice cream, where instead of the, the chips are hard, the ice cream's soft, the brick is the opposite. The brick is hard and the, the polymers are the, are the soft chips inside. But just that, and that, that's exactly what it is. It's, I like to think of, of a brick like, uh, as a sponge also. It's just a very hard sponge, but it's very porous. And inside we put another sponge, but it's a very soft sponge. Um, and it's not coming out because you can take a brick and you can paint it. And once you paint it, yeah, maybe it stores energy because the paint can store energy. Maybe you can paint it and, and now it conducts electricity because the paint can uh, conduct electricity. But eventually it'll, it will chip off. It will delaminate. Once it delaminates. What, what, um, what is the PEMDOT density? If you start at the surface of the brick, a treated brick, and you go inwards, what does the density of the PEMDOT look like? How fast does it fall off? So the density, so you mean the, uh, the, the coating, how much? Okay, so, so we can control that. We can control that very well. So we can actually convert, you know, the top uh, mil, uh, half a millimeter of the brick into, into our polymer. We can convert uh, the entire brick into a polymer. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, the reason why I ask is um, if you want to have increased energy density, if you do the circuits that you're talking about where anode and cathode are on the surface of the brick, and if that's the greatest, the area of greatest density of PEMDOT, maybe just by staying in that first half millimeter layer and doing all your work there, that you'll have a much higher energy density. No, wow, you're 100% right. Yeah, you can. So when you measure the energy density, you're going to have choices. And so one of the choices is, look, uh, I can store X amount of energy, but then you have to quantify, then you have to clarify how you made that measurement. And so you have to normalize it. And when you normalize energy density, you have three choices. You can normalize it by mass, by volume, or by surface area. And uh, by area, sorry, by area. And so the idea is that if you can coat the entire brick and you can make a very thick coating of PDOT and you normalize energy density by area, the thicker the coating, the more polymer you have per area. So you, have a, you get a very large capacitance and it works. The problem is that the thicker the coatings, the slower the diffusion of the ions into the polymer and, the, and into the brick. And at some point after one millimeter or even like after half a millimeter, it becomes incredibly, incredibly resistive for ions to go in the brick. And the only, the only way they can do that, you know, is if you apply a lot of potential. And um, so the, the idea of going really thick in, in the coatings is a good idea, but it has a limit. It has a limit. At some point, you start making these coatings so thick, the resistance increases, and you're not able to store more energy, regardless of how thick you make them. Um, but, but look, this is, this is just based on a brick. So I, I'm guessing that your next question will be, <laughs> uh, what if you oriented, what if you could orient, align the pores of the brick? Ha! <laughs> I don't know if you were going to ask me that, but I presumed you would ask me that because you, you, you know, you'd be, you've asked me that before. And I can tell that, you know, you really understand um, nanoscience. And so, <laughs> and so Richard, you, you, I presumed that you would ask me that. And the answer would be, yeah, if you can align the pores of the brick, you can make them thicker and you can 
uh, overcome the resistance of, uh, of uh, you know, of ions going in. So yeah, so uh, I think going thicker is a really good idea. I think it has limits, but there are solutions to some of the challenges associated with going thicker. Yeah, my guess is you'll probably have to work with a brick maker, you know, brick manufacturer, and you'll tell them the parameters you want, and they'll make a brick in such a way that you'll get the energy density you want. And then your uh, challenge to be like will be like, okay, with existing bricks out there now, how do we do the same thing? Uh, you're hundred percent right, but you know what? We are making our own bricks. We can do that. Uh, believe, uh, <laughs> it's too much fun, Richard. I cannot pass it up. Uh, I had the opportunity to make our own bricks, so that's what we're doing right now. We're making our own bricks. Uh, but oh, okay. you know, but but making your own bricks is not the same as manufacturing bricks, right? So that the idea of going from lab to manufacturing is a whole different world, right? So maybe we come up with the most ideal brick that maybe is just so incredibly expensive, you know, or maybe not. Maybe we learn something that we can now apply, like you said, to a, to a real commercial brick that's out there. Uh, and so, yeah, I think both, I think both ideas are brilliant. I think making your own bricks and then buying the right brick and those ideas are good ideas. I just not could, I, I just cannot pass up the opportunity on making bricks because uh, I am that's a chemist. Cool. And they're so cool. They're so, you know, just bake something at a thousand degrees C. We have the capacity. We, we, we do that in my lab all the time. We can go, you know, higher than that. Um, and, and then again, we don't make bricks the, the size of, you know, of uh, regular bricks. Our bricks are like uh, um, half, one centimeter by half a centimeter, you know, by, I don't know, one by three millimeters. You know, <laughs> we make little, little tiny bricks. And so for us, uh, it's not a lot of work to make bricks, um, you know. Uh, a, a regular size brick would last us a whole year. Well, what I noticed though is a lot of the newer construction. It looks like they're just doing brick facades. You know, they have their typical drywall, whatever they use, and then they put on. My guess it's it's a quarter inch thick or half inch thick brick facade. So if you can also use those and they're workable for you, you don't have to just only deal with buildings with the big fat bricks. Yeah, you know, older construction uh, that'll work too. But it yeah, seems like. Right. Anymore, people don't use bricks very often to make like a, you know, an entire house or a wall. They're just using this facade material. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, that's one of the things that I've learned uh, recently. I have a friend who's a, an architect. Uh, his name is Pablo Moyano, and he is an architect here at uh, Washington University. And, um, and Pablo, you know, he's been teaching me a lot of things about architecture. And one of the things that I learned is that building with bricks is more expensive than with concrete. And so that, that kind of construction is declining, more expensive. And so the idea of the facade is a good idea because you know it allows you to have the beautiful brick facade that you want. Uh, yeah. And if absolutely. it's functional too, because of your technology, all the better. Yeah, absolutely. Totally functional and uh, all the better because the whole idea is to store energy. Uh, you know, people love that red color though. So I, whatever I, whatever I uh, add value to, to a brick, I cannot touch that red color. I have to develop my devices without affecting the facade because people love that red color. It's part of culture almost, you know, like as part of like when you think of a house, you think of the red color, you know, it's part of like the American culture, I guess, you know, um, maybe yep. it's universal. Maybe the entire world feels the same way about bricks. They have to be red. <laughs> no, I've noticed whenever I see ones that are not red, they look fake. They there look altered. Go. And there the red is the original, that ochre color, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's what you want, and that's what you want. Uh, that's what I've learned. Uh, every every time that I talk to a to a company about this uh, technology, they always want to ask me that: How do we hide this? You know, <laughs> how do we hide this so we can not affect the beautiful red color? Because companies spend so much money on that red color, 
on trying to oh. get the right colors, different tones. There are just so many different tones of bricks, the reds, you know? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, very cool. Well, Julio, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your project and, uh, and follow it as it goes? Yeah, great. Um, you know, I am an assistant professor of chemistry at Washington University. So you can just type uh, Washington University Organic Electronics or my name, <laughs> Darcy, and you'll find me uh, in the chemistry department in St. Louis at WashU. Uh, I have a website and uh, I, I, I have all my publications and a little excerpt about this technology. And you can also email me. You know, I have my email. Uh, it's jdarcy at wustl.edu. If you have any questions, please do. <laughs> okay. Well, very good. Julio, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.